Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Yaakov runs away from Esav. He goes to the well. He meets Rachel. He proposes. He goes to Lovan, and Lovan says, What's your offer? And Yaakov offers to work seven years. He works the seven years. He marries Rachel. He wakes up in the morning. It's not Rachel, it's Leah. He goes running to Lovan. What'd you do? You tricked me. And Lovan says, That's the way we do things around here. We don't give the Bechira. We don't give the older one, the young one, before the older one. Work another seven years. So in fact, Yaakov marries Rachel. He waits after the Shev Rachel and works an additional seven years. So far he's worked 14 years for Lovan. And Lovan went from a regular individual to be exceedingly wealthy. He became very, very wealthy because in the course of history there probably never was a worker as Yaakov Avinu. As he later describes, he slept in the fields at night he would eat ice, he would do everything, he never returned a single killed sheep, and because of his extraordinary work, Lovan became very, very wealthy. At a certain point, Yaakov said, what am I going to do for my own people, my own family, I want to leave. Lovan says, no, please stay. So they broker a deal, fine, I'll watch your sheep, but here's the deal, the speckled one, the spotted ones, those will be mine, says Yaakov, the rest will be yours. They agree, and in fact, whatever would happen, the sheep would give birth to the speckled and the spotted. <coughs> Lovan changed the deal a number of times. He tried to change it back and forth, but nothing helped. Yaakov became very, very wealthy. His sheep, his cattle, his slave began growing and growing, and after six years, he was extraordinarily wealthy far exceeding the wealth of Lovan. And Yaakov noticed that the children of Lovan no longer regarded him as they had till that point, and he realized that he was going to very quickly become persona non grata. He was not going to be welcome there. He tells his wives, it, wives it's time to leave, and they gather all their belongings and they sneak out. Three days later, Lovan discovers they're gone, and he goes running after them. In a dream, Hashem comes to him and says, Do not say anything to Yaakov for the good or for the bad. Don't touch him. Lovan finally catches up with Yaakov and says to him, If it weren't for the dream I had that your God is protecting you, I had a mind to do bad for you. And Yaakov says, Why do you have a mind to do bad? What have I done bad for you? I worked for you so many years. I did tremendous things to you. I didn't once cheat you in any way and you change the deal a hundred times. And finally, <coughs> Yaakov apparently gets upset. <speaking in Hebrew> what was my sin? <speaking in Hebrew> that you come running after me? And he says these words, <speaking in Hebrew> If we weren't for my God, who saw <speaking in Hebrew> my poverty and my tremendous diligence and work, Otherwise, if it weren't for that, you would have sent me home a poor man. If it weren't for Hashem's protection, He would have sent me out impoverished. Don't come complaining. 
But it's interesting to know what Yaakovinu says. Hashem protected me, Hashem guarded me, and He saw the hard labor of my hands. <clears throat> Rabbi Mechai says, from here the Gemara learns out the concept that hard labor, honest labor with one's hands, is greater than Yerushalayim. What protected Yaakov, what allowed him to actually escape Lovin's clutches, was the fact that he worked honestly, and that's exactly what he said, Yegiyah Kapai, the hard labor of my hands, Hashem saw, and because of that I was redeemed, because of that Hashem saved me, if it weren't for that, apparently, Yaakov might not have escaped unscratched. And the Gemara Brachas again explains to us that not only is it meritorious to work, but it's Godom Yerushamayim. It's even greater, you'll acquire even greater accomplishments, you'll rank higher in the world to come, even than Yerushamayim, if one works diligently, one works honestly. Okay, now here's the obvious question on the Gemara. Hashem created many, many animals in the wild kingdom. Many, many beasts of burden. There are oxes that pull. There are donkeys that carry. There are many, many animals that for their living are beasts of burden and carry loads. But that's not why Hashem made man. The pinnacle of creation, the reason for creation is Adam. But Adam is not meant to be a worker in the field. Hashem did not create the entire cosmos and put Adam into it for man to earn his daily bread. Granted, you have to work for a living. I understand that. But why is Yaakov saying, what Hashem saw was my diligent work. And because of that, I was saved. And why does God say that you see from here that hard labor is even more meritorious than being a Yarish Shemayim? That doesn't seem to make much sense at all. Hard labor is, okay, maybe you need to do it. Working diligently is a good trait. But don't tell me it's bigger than Yerushalayim. Why is that? Why do we learn this from Yaakov? And in fact, what is the Gemara sharing with us? And to understand what, in fact, the Gemara is learning here, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. The 19th century, the 20th century, per se, was probably the greatest change in mankind's history. In a short time of 100 years, the world went from horse and buggies to landing a man on the moon. They went from outhouses to indoor plumbing to electricity to telephones to cars to airplanes. In a span of close to 100 years, probably there was never a greater change in the way people conducted themselves, in the way they acted, in mankind's position in the world. And clearly the 20th century was a phenomenal time of change, a phenomenal time of man's improvement. In any case, Time magazine decided at the end of the 20th century to run what they called a a contest to determine who was the man of the century. Now typically Time magazine had a man of the year that they would put up each year, a picture of the individual had the greatest influence on the world. But now this was the 1999 coming into 2000, and now it's time for Time Magazine to elect the man of the century. So they gave all their editors this sort of um, contest, and they said, we want you to come back with who you feel was the single individual who had the greatest influence, the greatest impact, caused the greatest change on the 20th century. Okay, a few weeks later, the editors came back for a meeting, and almost unanimously they voted for Adolf Hitler. 
the single man in the 20th century who affected mankind, humankind, civilization more than any other person was Adolf Hitler. Now, the problem is if you put Adolf Hitler's picture on the cover of Time magazine, you don't sell, sell many uh, copies of that magazine. So Time magazine had to restructure the contest. Who was the individual who had the most positive influence on the century? And they sent the editors back to recalibrate, come up with a new answer. And they came back, they voted, and Albert Einstein was voted the man of the century. And you can see his picture on the cover of Time magazine, a man of the century, the single human being who had the greatest positive influence on civilization, Albert Einstein. Okay, very interesting. Now, it is true that Albert Einstein did a lot, theory of relativity, and much of our lifestyle now, uh, much of man's understanding, certainly of physics, is due to Albert Einstein, and mankind does owe a lot to his discoveries, to his theories, to what he uncovered. But I'd like to ask you a very simple question. Albert Einstein is no longer with us. Where is Albert Einstein today? Okay, so I'd like to share with you the unfortunate reality is that he might very well be in Gehenna. I'll explain to you very clearly why. He was Jewish, and for a while he was even exploring Judaism. When his bar mitzvah, you know, his parents weren't religious, but he, he had some interest. He was eating kosher for a while, apparently even kept Shabbos a while. But he clearly stated, as a mature person, over and over, I do not believe in a personal God. I've never denied this, but expressed it clearly. If something in me is to be called religious, it's the unbounded admiration for the structure of the world. But multiple times he said he does not believe in a God who's concerned with human beings, in a God who's involved in human endeavors. So, it's a mission in Sanhedrin that tells us, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Chei Every Jew... Every Jew has a portion of the world to come. Great, small, big, little, every Jew has a portion, except for the following. If someone says there's no Tchias <clears throat> one says no Torah Minashemayim, and Apikoris. I'm sorry to tell you that according to all three of those, Albert Einstein doesn't have a portion of the world to come. And even if you tell me he's a Tinoch Shanishba, listen, he was brought up in... Germany, the seat of assimilation. Um, even so, ask a three-year-old, where is Hashem? And I'll tell you, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. <clears throat> In the world to come, you only become what you accomplished, what you knew, how much of Hashem you recognized, how much of Hashem you understood. So even if he's in Gan Eden, it's in the back, 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 back row. So here's my question. How could there be such disparity? The man of the century, and if you ask Chazal, he's either in Gehenna or maybe he's in Gan Eden. It's in a some minor minuscule. You won't even see it. Won't even see him in the back, 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 back row. How could there be such disparity between the world's understanding of Albert Einstein, the single individual with the greatest positive impact, and the way Chazal would interpret him as like Nebuch, unfortunately, a minuscule splinter of an individual. And if you'd like to understand why there's such a disparity, it's really quite simple. You see, if you ask the world at large, who runs the world? And the answer is man. You know, listen, God is, is okay. You know, he's okay at some things. 
But, you know, really, there's a lot of help that's needed. You know, God may be good at some of the big picture stuff, but there are rivers to be forded, bridges to be built, there are oceans that need to be crossed, industries to be created. I mean, God is okay with little things like elephants, giraffes, mountains and rivers, that kind of thing. But like the really important stuff like satellites, cell phones, computers, I mean, you know, God needs help. We, we you know, where God couldn't quite fill in the pieces, man, mighty, powerful, brilliant man, steps in. Interestingly, if you read Isaacson's biography about Einstein, he writes that when Einstein was five years old, he was home sick, and his father brought him a compass. And he saw this, and he was mesmerized by the fact that the needle kept pointing north. There was a force that couldn't be seen, and yet it clearly had an impact and effect he says he was influenced the rest of his life by that understanding that there are hidden forces working that we can't even see, and yet somehow influence everything around us. And I'd like to explain to you the key distinction between modern man and ancient man. When ancient man put a seed in the ground and up came a tree, he was astounded. That's God. When ancient man had a child. He said, that's God. Ancient man had no explanation, no understanding, and therefore saw Hashem right there because what other explanation can there be for the cosmos? A hundred billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. And whatever understanding he had, he recognized that there was a God who created it, a God who orchestrated it, and ancient man saw God. Modern man discovered the systems, discovered the levers, discovered the pulleys. And modern man pulled back the curtain and discovered the underpinnings, the workings of nature. Modern man discovered that heat tends to rise. Modern man discovered that heavy objects tend to fall. Modern man discovered three states of matter, liquid, gas, and solid. And modern man realized that he no longer needs God because he pulled back the veil and now understands that when you put a seed in the ground, it's not God, it's nature. When a baby's born, it's just cells dividing. Because man has discovered the mechanism, he now no longer needs God. And I'd like to explain to you very simply what modern man has done. August 3rd, 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed from Spain the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria, and he discovered America. But I want you to hear what I'm saying to you. Christopher Columbus sailed and discovered America, but God invented America. Columbus discovered it, God invented it. Modern man, brilliant man, has merely uncovered the systems, the mechanisms, the pulleys that God created and runs. Modern man thinks he no longer needs God because he has the systems. You now see Hashem on a deeper level. You now understand the mechanisms via which Hashem runs the world. But man in his arrogance thinks that now that he recognizes the levers, the systems, he no longer needs God. And if you'd like to know where arrogance leads you to, it was also the end of the 18th century when there was a movement to close the patent office. Everything that is to be discovered has already been discovered, 
and there was a movement to close the patent office because there would be no more discoveries. That was in 1899. Uh, Mr. Arrogant Sir, a couple of discoveries were discovered after that point, I'd like to point out to you. But you see, when you're full of yourself and you know all the answers, you now understand the system. You no longer need God. But if you'd like to fundamentally understand the world, what the Ramban explains to us is that Teva is Hashem. When you see consistent, orchestrated, coordinated nature, you're seeing Hashem running the world. You're seeing Hashem involved in the world. You see Hashem maintaining the world. All you're doing is looking at the systems that Hashem created and constantly maintains. It is true. There's an organized, consistent, coordinated method via which Hashem runs the world. When you put a seed in the ground, the cells divide, the cellulose begins forming, the wood bark begins forming. There's a system. But that's Hashem running everything. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand Hashem's relationship to physicality, you have to understand things on a little bit deeper level. I'll give you a muscle that I've said before, but it bears repeating. Imagine it's a cold February night, and I'm standing at the bus stop, and I'm shivering, freezing cold, freezing cold. I close my eyes, I imagine a beautiful beach scene, white sand, beautiful ocean blue, beautiful cloudless sky, one lone seagull gently wafting across the sky. Suddenly the bus comes splash. Gone is the sand, gone is the ocean blue, gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I dream about the dream, the dream remains. The minute I stop thinking about the dream, gone is the sand, gone is the ocean blue, gone is the seagull. That is Hashem's relationship to all of physicality. Everything in existence was brought into existence and is maintained in existence by Hashem every single moment. When you put a seed in the ground, you're watching Hashem orchestrating that on a very, very minuscule, microscopic level. Hashem is there. Every particle of physicality is kept in existence by Hashem at all times. Hashem is called Makom, the place, because if you see anything in existence, Hashem is there because Hashem is keeping it in existence. And all of nature is Hashem orchestrating the world and working through things. It is true that Christopher Columbus discovered America, but Hashem invented it. Modern man discovered the system. He discovered the atom. He discovered the quark. He now knows how Hashem runs the world. He now knows the method via which Hashem orchestrates the world, But if you think you've replaced God, quite the opposite. You've pulled back the curtain, and now you see your Creator with much greater clarity, but all you're doing is seeing Hashem running the world time in and time out. And in that sense, I believe Time Magazine gave Einstein the title called Man of the Century. Because you see, if God's not in the picture, then Einstein was a pivotal person. Einstein really changed mankind's understanding at the core of its essence, at the core of physics, at the core of existence. And in that sense, Einstein is a man who's credited with tremendous, tremendous things. But once you understand that Hashem doesn't need Einstein, Hashem reveals a little bit 
of his tremendous wisdom to different people at different times because Hashem wants it to be known. Einstein happened to have been the person on the scene at the time, but that just means he was the person who uncovered, who discovered that which Hashem created and that which Hashem runs on a regular, ongoing basis. And any single activity under the sun, any outcome that occurs, Hashem is directly involved in, completely involved in, and Hashem doesn't need Einstein, and doesn't need Jeff Bezos, doesn't need Steve Jobs, doesn't need anyone to run the world. Hashem created and runs the world, and is quite capable of continuing running the world perfectly, even without mankind's assistance. So what role does man play? And how is man credited with doing anything if every outcome is determined by Hashem? And to understand the answer to that question, I want you to imagine the following. Imagine that you and I witness Ruvain pull out a gun. Pulls out a gun, and he's about to shoot Shimon. We say, don't do it, don't do it. He says, I don't care. And he shoots Shimon dead. Falls to the floor, down on the floor. They haul Ruvain into Bezdin. They ask us to testify. Yes, we saw it. We warned him. He said he doesn't care. And Bezdin is about to paskin him Lamisa. They're about to ver- give the verdict. And Ruvain turns to the 23 judges and he says, Gentlemen, are you Orthodox? Yes, we are. Jewish? Yes, we are. What do you want, Ruvain? Well, don't you believe in God? Uh, yeah, we do. What do you want? Don't you know that on Rosh Hashanah it's decreed who will live and who will die? What that means is, if it were decreed that Ruvain, that Shimon was to continue living this year, I would not have been able to kill him. And if in fact I killed him, it means God decreed it. Don't go blame me, go blame God. What do you want from me? And that's his point. What does Bazin say to him? What's the answer to his question? So the answer is that he's 100% correct. On Rosh Hashanah it's decreed, miyichia, miyamus, who will live and who will die. And if on Rosh Hashanah it was decreed that Shimon will live, there's nothing that Ruvain or you or anyone else can do to change that verdict. Shimon will have a long, healthy life. However, if it was decreed on Rosh Hashanah that Shimon should leave this earth this year, it might well also have been decreed that there could be different people who could be on the scene and they could be allowed to pull the trigger. Now, what that means in plain simple language is Shimon's time was up. Chafbeis Kislev, in a violent manner, he was supposed to die. <clears throat> Ruvain was allowed to be on the scene. If Ruvain just elected not to kill Shimon, Shimon would have been hit by a car, a falling light pole, something would have happened, he would have died a violent death at that time. However, <clears throat> Ruvain is allowed to be the murderer. He's allowed to pull out the gun, he's allowed to make a decision, and if in fact Ruvain pulls the trigger on that gun, and from that action Shimon dies, for all accounts, for all purposes, Ruvain is called the murderer of Shimon. But, but, but what do you mean? I thought Shimon was going to die anyway. Absolutely. To allow for free will, to allow for scharva onish, reward and punishment, Shimon allows certain people to be on the scene at the time, if they elect to pull the trigger, for all accounts, for all purposes, he is the murderer. Even though Shimon would have died anyway. And had Ruvain not done it, Shimon would be as dead as a doornail today. It doesn't matter. Shimon allowed him to be on the scene. And if he pulls the trigger on the gun, he's considered the murderer. Based in Paschim Lamisa, and for all 
accounts, he is the Rotzeach. And this explains to us how all his Shtadlis works. I have to recognize, I have to understand that every outcome is determined by Hashem. Nevertheless, I have to go about my part. I have to use the world in the ways of the world, to earn a living, I have to get a job, to stay healthy, I have to eat right. When it's time to get married, I have to go out there and find my Bashar. And I have to know all the while that exactly that which is supposed to happen is going to happen. And I have a muscle that I think is very important, and that muscle is, <clears throat> imagine that we're at a play. And the last scene, the two heroes get into a fist fight, punching, kicking, one swings wide, the other ducks, boom, pass, the curtain comes down, play is over. Okay. Ten minutes later, <clears throat> I go backstage, and I see the two actors, one slapping his, the other one on the back, and say, whoa, what a good punch, and I, oh yeah, and you kick, I almost missed it. And I said, what are you guys doing? Ten minutes ago, you were on the, on the stage, punching, kicking each other. Now you're slapping each other on the back? They look at me and say, what? That was a choreographed fight scene. I was supposed to swing wide. He was supposed to duck. We were going through the motions. When I'm in the marketplace, <clears throat> I'm supposed to look like I'm in control. I determine the future, and all the while I'm supposed to know that this is a choreographed fight scene. Every outcome is determined by Shem. Every result is predestined. I have to do my part, I have to go through the motions, but that's all I'm doing, <clears throat> going through the motions, the exact outcome is determined by Hashem. And there's one more step that's very important to know. Because I'll tell us that the end of a person's days, there are a number of questions that he's asked. One of those questions is, Nasata v'nasata be'emuna. Did you conduct your business dealings be'emuna? Now, normally, that's translated as, were you honest in business? Did you conduct your business dealings honestly? And as Shev Shemaitza points out that that's not at all what Chazal is saying. It's not what the words mean, and you can't translate it that way at all, because it's not correct. Nasatam and Asatam Emuna, did you conduct your business with Emuna, with faith, with understanding that Hashem runs the world? Explains the Shev Shemaitza in his introduction, and the question they ask you is, were you able to cut through the haze of physicality? Did you go to work knowing that you're just going through the motions? Did you go to work knowing that Hashem determines the outcome, you're going through the motion, but everything is determined by Hashem? And if you'd like to fundamentally understand work, I have a very important muscle. Imagine a fellow gets a call from the Manahel, his six-year-old boy in school doesn't play with the children well. He clearly is lacking social skills. I don't know, maybe maybe he's on a spectrum. He needs to learn how to socialize. He needs to learn social skills. Okay, anyway, the father takes it seriously, enrolls the boy in a social skills class, gets a special therapist, and the father makes it his business to make sure that his son learns to be a mensch, learns to integrate into society. Ad kedekach, to the extent... The father actually plans play dates. And one play date invites his son and two of the friends, and they're sitting on the floor playing Monopoly. Okay. And they're playing Monopoly, and as they're playing, and Moshi and his two friends are playing along with the father, and as they're playing, the doorbell rings, the other boys look up, and Moshi takes a few $500 bills and puts it in his pocket. Hmm. Father doesn't want to say anything, doesn't want to embarrass the kid. Okay, playing a few turns later, and there's a noise outside. Again, the boys all look up, and Moshe again pockets a couple of $500. And 
<coughs> one of the boys goes to the bathroom, and again, Moshe pockets a few more 500s, and at a certain point, the father realizes that something's amiss over here. And he pulls Moshe aside, pulls him into the kitchen, and says to Moshe, I, I couldn't help but notice that some of the money from the bank, maybe by accident, ended up in your pocket. And Moshe reaches into his pocket and says, Yes, Tati, I heard Mommy and you talking about last night, you don't have enough, you don't have enough money. Tati, here, it, it's for you. I believe that is a very important muscle. And many people pull drays in business, they pull, they cut corners, they pull shtick, and then they give lots of money to Stucker. Hashem, you needed the money. Hashem, I did it for you, you know. Hashem, you, I, look, I'm supporting yeshivas and kolos and hospitals. Hashem, I, I, I did it for you. I'd like to share with you, Hashem doesn't need your money. But it's not that Hashem doesn't need your money. You're making a fundamental error. Why does Hashem want you to work? Hashem has lots and lots and lots of money. Hashem owns diamond mines in South Africa, owns oil in Saudi Arabia, owns all the real estate in New York City. Hashem has lots and lots of money. Hashem doesn't need you to work to earn a living. Hashem gave you this opportunity to cut through the haze of physicality, to work hard, to work diligently, and to realize that you're just going through the motions, for you to grow in Amuna, for you to understand that it's Hashem's world, Hashem created the world, Hashem orchestrates the world. But you see, when you're working all day, it's very easy to get caught up. And that's the great challenge. If you could go to work and work diligently, work very, very focused, very hard, and realize that it's Hashem, that's how you grow. And I believe that's exactly why Chazal say, greater than your Shemayim is Yegiyah Kapov, because Yaakov Avinu worked with tremendous, tremendous emuna. He cut through the haze of physicality, he wasn't lazy, not only was he lazy, he worked to an extent that's hard to imagine. For seven years he slept in the fields, did everything imaginable, love him, became tremendously wealthy. His scrupulousness, his incredible, impeccable honesty was a Musa lesson for all to see. But if you want to learn real Musa, I'll share with you the observation that a lot of people don't quite catch. Yaakov is duped. He opens his eyes in the morning, sees it's Leah. He goes running to love him. Why'd you fool me? Yeah, Lovin says, we don't do that in our place. We don't give the, <coughs> we don't give the younger before the older. Do this. You'll marry Rachel, work another seven years for me, and that'll work off, you'll pay off the debt that you owe me now for Rachel. And in fact, that's what happens. He marries Rachel, and he works Sheva Shonim Acheros, another seven years. Says Rashi, why is the Torah telling us Shava Shonim Acheros? Obviously, they're different years. <coughs> Obviously, they're not the same years worked over again. Explains Rashi, no, that's what the Torah is telling us. He worked the second seven years exactly identically to the way he worked the first seven years. The way he worked the first seven years was incredible honesty, incredible diligence. The second seven years he worked with the same tremendous honesty, scrupulousness, and diligence even though he was duped, even though he was fooled. And I'd like to share with you, that is profound. Because you see, if you treat me with respect, okay, I'm a mensch, I'll act nicely back to you. If you treat me with disrespect, it's hard for me to act back to you nicely. If I do something really, really good for you, and you throw it back in my face, it's hard for me to want to do a chesed to you. 
What Yaakov did was way, way lifnei Meshur Sadin. He was so far diligent, so beyond the letter of the law, that it's hard to imagine. But the second seven years he was duped, he was fooled, he shouldn't have done it. Love and tricked him, love and fooled him. The second seven years should not have been worked. And yet he worked with the same incredible honesty. And the reason is really very, very deep. And that is because my morality is not determined by you. You see, Yaakov understood he had one boss. He didn't work for Lovan, he worked for God. Hashem wants me to work, Hashem wants me to be here. For these seven years, I'm working for my boss. My boss is not boss of Adam. My boss is not that guy. He doesn't determine how I act. He's nice to me, not nice to me. He's dishonest, honest, it doesn't matter. I have a Shulchan Aruch, I have a way, because I'm serving my Creator. And to be able to work an additional seven years with such honesty and integrity, even though he was duped, even though he was fooled, every, even though every moment he should not have been working, but that's not the determinant of my morality. I am honest, I am scrupulous, because I work for my boss. My boss is God. And I believe that's the great lesson the Chazal are teaching us. <clears throat> Greater than Yerushalayim is a cup of, because if you get it, if you're able to cut through the haze of physicality and understand why you work, and why Hashem wants you to work. Because Hashem wants you going through the motions and seeing ultimately that it's Hashem. Hashem wants you to work and grow in Amuna. Hashem wants you to go through the motions and see that it's always Him. He who created, He who maintains, He who orchestrates every outcome. But when you're very involved, it's a great challenge. And when you have to use the world in a very real way, it's a tremendous challenge to remember, even under those circumstances, that it's Hashem's world, and that's Hashem. That's the way Hashem runs the world. And when you do that, you really grow, you cut through the haze of physicality, and you reach tremendous, tremendous godless. And I believe this concept is tremendously applicable to so many, so many situations in life. And knowing that I have to use this world in the ways of the world, and all the while that's a test, it's an opportunity. Like little Moshe sitting on the floor, the father didn't need Moshe to play Monopoly. The father didn't need Moshe's money. The father did it for the benefit of Moshe, so Moshe should learn to be a mensch. When Hashem puts us in situations, it's not because Hashem needs our money, nor our ishtadlus. Hashem gives us many, many situations to allow us to grow, to allow us to cut through the haze of the physical world, and see that it's He and He alone who runs the world. And with that, I'd like to share with you an interesting thought. Let's imagine we get to meet David, a fine balabas, flapush, and he shows up to the Dafayomi every day, Starbucks coffee in hand, and listens to the Dafayomi. Right after the Dafayomi, and puts on tefillin, and puts on his talus, he davens, and after davening, he's folding up his talus, and he says the words, that was for Hashem, and now this is for me, and he goes to work. Now, you look at him, he's a fine ball of bus, look, he learns, he davens, and he realizes he has to work. That was for Hashem, and this is for me. Okay, I used to think that David was half a kofer, as in Hashem lives in the Beit Medrash, Hashem takes care of this part of the world, but now i got to earn a living, that's up to me. I used to think David was half a kofer. But I realize from this chazal that David is making a much deeper mistake. Do you understand? It's not that he's a kofer half the day. 
it's his blowing his 9 to 5. Hashem doesn't need him to go to work. Hashem doesn't need him to be a stockbroker, a lawyer, a doctor, an Indian chief. Hashem has lots and lots of money. Hashem gave him this opportunity to grow, to accomplish, to cut through the haze and see Hashem, to grow in Amuna. And if you use that opportunity that way, it's Kaddish, it's holy, and every minute of that day, you're serving your Creator. But if you miss it, you blew everything. You wasted your 9 to 5, wasted the opportunity to grow, wasted the whole reason why Hashem put you here. And much like the father sees his son cheating in the Monopoly game and says, why are you doing that? Shem sits back and watches, you don't think I have enough money? You don't think I could somehow support you? And I believe this concept is fundamental. So many times people say things like, oh, if only I didn't have to work for money, I could learn more, I could daven better, I could serve Hashem better. Hashem knows very well what He's doing. And I think Yaakov Avinu is a tremendous Muslim lesson. He worked for 14 years and then another 6 years with incredible integrity because that's what Hashem wants. And if you wonder how it is that Einstein is man of the century, the answer is because from modern man's perspective, God did okay. But the really important things like satellite communication, that you need man for. You know, it's one thing to create Mount Everest, but if you need to do something really great like a cell phone, I mean, come on, that you know, God can't figure that one out, please. I mean, you know, atoms and quarks are one thing, but if you really got to, you know, if you got to create really difficult things like, uh, you know, disposable soda caps, that really requires man. And I believe the mistake that modern man makes is he foolishly thinks he replaced God. Ancient man saw Hashem because he saw nothing in nature that made sense. He couldn't fathom how a forest could come into existence. He couldn't fathom how a baby calf could be born. It didn't make sense. And so he recognized that Hashem was there. The mistake that modern man made is he discovered the mechanisms. He discovered the levers. And like Columbus, he discovered America. But you didn't invent America. Hashem invented America. Hashem invented the molecules, the quarks. Hashem invented all the laws of physics. And even more than that, as Ramban explains to us, Hashem runs Teva 24-7, 365. Hashem is the creator, maintainer, and orchestrator of everything in physicality. Much like I to the dream, I'm the dreamer. As long as I think about the seagull, it exists. As long as Hashem infuses energy into physicality, it exists. But nothing under the sun occurs without Hashem's constant infusion of energy, constantly keep it happening, and when you see Teva, when you see a seed put in the ground, you're watching the orchestrated, coordinated method that Hashem uses consistently to run the world. If you're able to use the world with that understanding, you grow, you become a tremendous person. Every minute of work is a mitzvah, every minute of work is kaddush. If you don't get that, if you're working to make a buck, if you're working to get rich because I need money, you're not just wasting your time, you're blowing the greatest opportunity imaginable. Hashem doesn't need you to do this. Hashem gave you this, afforded you this opportunity to grow and accomplish. If you get it, you reach stellar heights. If not, you blow it. And I'd like to close with one last observation. The Sadigiva Rebbe used to sweep the streets in front of the Shtibul in Tel Aviv. And the street sweeper would come by at about 6 a.m. and find the street regularly swept. And he didn't understand it. 
And finally, he came one day early and saw the Sadigva Rebbe himself sweeping the street. And he asked him, why? Rebbe, why are you out? I have a job to be the street sweeper. Why are you doing it? And the Sadigva Rebbe explained why. He said it was 1938 in Vienna, and they gathered all the Jews into the center of town, and the Nazis saw I was a rabbi, and they told me, we have to clean the town. We have to clean the steps. And they asked me to clean the steps because I was the rabbi. And as I'm cleaning the steps, I said to Hashem, Hashem, I promise you, if you allow me to live, I'll go to Israel and I will clean the streets there. Hashem allowed me to live and I'm keeping that promise and every day I sweep the streets. Okay, that's a very nice story. But I'd like to tell you the rest of the story. There were many, many Jews gathered there. And the significant Rebbe was in fact a Rebbe then. <clears throat> and they gave all the Jews brooms, but they gave the Siddiqui Rebbe a toothbrush because the Nazis wanted to have a little bit of sport. So they gave him a toothbrush and he told them, Jew, Rabbina, clean the steps. And the Siddiqui Rebbe is there with a toothbrush scraping, scraping the steps. And some of his Hasidim saw that he was smiling. And he said, Rebbe, why are you smiling? It's like you're enjoying it. Like you're, you're, Why are you smiling? He looked up at them and said, They think I'm cleaning their steps. I'm cleaning Hashem's world. It's Hashem's world I'm cleaning. That emuna to understand that this Nazi is a pawn. He's a puppet. He doesn't control my destiny. Hashem wants me to do this. But more than that, everything in existence is Hashem's. And the Nazi's uniform, the Nazi's concentration camp, the planet, the globe, everything belongs to Hashem, and this is Hashem's world, and Hashem runs the world, and Hashem wants me to do this, I'm not just fine with that, I'm comfortable, I enjoy it, because it's Hashem's world. When you have that broad understanding, life fundamentally makes sense, every moment of your existence is Kaddish and holy, you grow, you accomplish, you enjoy this world because you recognize why you're here, and ultimately you the greatness for which you were put on the planet to do. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. They can be on this topic or any other. Uh, you can feel free to raise your hand. Um, if you're brave and raise your hand, I prefer those. Um, uh, okay, someone... Um, Avram, Avram wrote in a question, okay. He says, is another way of looking at Rebbe saying that the base measures is just a classroom learning about Amuna, but the workforce is the homework where Amuna is tested. That's very good. I like that. The base measures is where you learn the lessons of when it's a classroom of learning, but the actual application of the laboratory of growth is uh, right, is, uh, is in the workforce. I agree 100%. I used to say an expression you can't learn to box from a book. If I decide I want to learn fighting the golden gloves. I take out every box, every book in the library, and I read about jabs, I read about crosses, I read about ducking and so it's all wonderful, but you can't learn how to box from a book. You gotta get in the ring, you gotta get hit, you gotta duck, you gotta learn how to take a punch. So the same too, you can't learn you learn the lessons in the in the base medrash. You learn the principles, but it's only in the laboratory of life that you really learn emuna, where it becomes real, where it becomes something that becomes a part of you. Yeah, I think it's a very good expression. I, I like that. Very good. Yeshkaya, very good. Okay, <clears throat> please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. 
I also, before I forget, I must mention, because if I don't mention it, I won't mention it, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is coming out in Yitzhah Hashem. I'm going to mention this from now till, till everybody buys this book, because the 11th really dumb mistake that very smart couples make is not reading the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. I have to tell you, we sent out about almost a thousand pre-publication copies, and the response has been tremendous. We sent it to Chosan and Kala teachers, the marriage therapist. I have overwhelmingly favorable responses. People ask me, can I get copies? I have quite a number of Chosan and Kala teachers who want the copies now to give out on a regular basis. I, we have the pre-print copies. I try to, I try to get them. I highly recommend you get a hold of a book. Please, it, it'll be out. Well, it's not out yet. You can't get it yet. But it will be available in stores in about two weeks. At Hanukkah time, it's coming out. It'll also be available on theshmooze.com. I also want to mention, if you're not yet receiving the WhatsApp Chizik group, if you're not part of the Shmooze WhatsApp Chizik group, please go to theshmooze.com and you'll see a banner there. You can click on it and it'll put you in the group. And then three, four times a week, you'll get to your phone uh, you get all of the short videos. We have these uh, two, three-minute videos that are very inspiring, very, mo- very motivational. You'll also get information about various Shmuz programs. You'll also get the replay of the Derech Hashem Shir Wednesday night, the replay of the Shmuz Live Thursday night. <clears throat> so if you'd like to stay up on what's happening, you could join the old-fashioned email list, which is still in existence. Email still exists, but that's the old school, if you want to keep up with things if you join the Shmooz WhatsApp Chizik group, so you'll be you'll right on your phone, you get all the information so if you get, just go to the theshmooz.com T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com on the banner, on the top you'll see a banner that says uh, to sign up for the Shmooz WhatsApp group and you'll get all the information as well as the short videos etc. sent right to your phone and if you have a question please feel free to write it in or Hopefully, raise your hand, but if you're too shy to raise your hand, which I understand, you're more than welcome to type it. Uh, here's another question. Um, okay. Uh, last week, Parsha Rif gets Navua that she will have two nations, and it sounds like Asa will be a Russia, and he'll end up doing, but we also know that one of the others could have been. Ace of, how does, uh, how does that work with Navua? Alright, so there are different types of Navua. Uh, Navua that a Hashem reveals to a Navi happens exactly as Hashem reveals it. Ruach HaKodesh is something different. Ruach HaKodesh is similar to Navua, but it's not Navua. And not everything uh, happens as it's supposed to because there is Bechira and there are people who can change things. So it's not true in the sense that she had an exact nevuah that Asa would be a Russia. She had Ruach HaKodesh. She saw <clears throat> prophetically on some level, but it wasn't a nevuah Hashem. It wasn't a Dibur Hashem. Uh, yes, Hashem said, Two nations will come out from you, and one will serve the other. But nowhere there did it say that Asa was going to be a Russia. That element, which she had knowledge of, was not part of Nevoah, and in fact, it wasn't necessarily true. Asaph had Bechiri, could have been one of the others. He chose poorly, and in fact, he wasn't. Um, okay, so again, one more point I want to mention again is that if you're interested, the Emuna in the Workplace is a series that uh, deals with many of the topics we discussed this evening. It's Emuna <coughs> in the Workplace. If you'd like to get uh, listen to that, 
If you go to the schmooze.com, the schmooze podcast, the schmooze app, you can access it. All you have to do is, again, you go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z, and you look by series, or again, the schmooze podcast or the schmooze app. The schmooze app is available for iPhone as well as Android. You have to just remember, <coughs> spelled funny, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z. And if you click on the series part, on the Android, it's on the top. On the iPhone, it's on the bottom. You'll see series and click <coughs> Moon in the Workplace, and you'll see it all there. Okay, I want to thank you all for joining. I hope to see you <coughs> next week. I wish you a good Shabbos and much, much Atzlacha. Thank you.